All three of today's scripture readings are about offering hospitality to strangers. The first, from the book of Genesis, tells the enigmatic story of three angelic strangers who visit Abraham and his wife Sarah. In the second reading, from the New Testament letter to the Hebrews, the author refers back to the story from Genesis without actually mentioning it. Finally, in the third reading from Matthew's Gospel, Jesus tells his disciples that in offering welcome to one another, they actually welcome God. From the book of Genesis, chapter 18, verses 1 to 15. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet them and bowed down to the ground. He said, My Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham hastened into the tent to Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of choice flour, knead it and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the servant, who hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is your wife, Sarah? And he said, There, in the tent. Then one said, I will surely return to you in due season, and your wife Sarah shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent entrance behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child, now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time I will return to you in due season, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, Oh yes, you did laugh. From the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. Let mutual love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them, those who are being tortured as though you yourselves were being tortured. Let marriage be held in honor by all, and let the marriage bed be kept undefiled for God will judge fornicators and adulterers. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. From the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 10, verses 40 to 42. Whoever welcomes you welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person 
in the name of a righteous person will receive the reward of the righteous. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple, truly I tell you, none of these will lose their reward. The word of the Lord. The 15 verses in that that first reading, the reading from Genesis that Debbie just read, are really hard to read straight in church. You did it very well. I mean, usually when you read the Bible in church, whether it's a, a lay reader or the minister, you're expected to kind of stride formally to the lectern and you, you face this big open pulpit Bible set before you and you pause and then if you're male you put on your best um, Alexander Scurby voice and if you're female you put on your best uh, Katie Couric voice and then you read in the very formal manner in which we expect to hear the Bible read. I mean you know how it sounds. It's it's sonorous, it's careful, it's slow, it's straight and serious. Now, this works well most of the time. It works well until you get to a story like the one that Debbie just read, the story of Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 18, a married couple who end up bickering about their sex lives in the presence of God. Now, they didn't know they were in the presence of God yet, but they're bickering over whether or not Sarah giggled behind the tent flap. The story goes like this. It's, it's pretty straightforward. Three mysterious visitors have come out of the desert to visit Sarah and Abraham, who are, who are um, uh, on the road, uh, visit them at their tent. Sarah and Abraham show them the best Semitic desert hospitality you can imagine. More precisely, actually, Abraham talks and invites, and Sarah does all the work. But while the men are talking, Sarah, who's in the tent, is eavesdropping. And one of the three, whom we might by now guess are not ordinary visitors, one of the three predicts that Sarah, in her old age, is going to have a child. At this point in the story, Sarah simply loses it. She laughs out loud. And then after she finishes laughing, she gets satirical behind her tent flap. This is where it gets very tough to read in your accustomed Alexander Scurby voice. After I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? <laughs> I'd love to hear how Alexander Scurby would do that one. And then this slightly heated husband and wife repartee begins. And the poor reader has to read Sarah's line, I did not laugh. And then she has to soberly read Abraham's retort, Oh yes, you did laugh. <laughs> the second reading is a whole lot easier. Five verses from the book of Hebrews, written centuries later, and referring back to this Genesis story. The writer of this New Testament book advises his readers with these words. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some, 
and he means Abraham and Sarah, some have entertained angels unawares. Abraham and Sarah had encountered angels unawares at first, then giggling at their prognostications, but otherwise they treated their mysterious guests with gracious Middle Eastern hospitality just the way they were expected to, and it's a good thing they did. The third lesson, the gospel reading from Matthew, comes at the end of a very long chapter in which Jesus charges his disciples to go out into the world and preach the gospel. He also warns them that they ought to expect more than a little bit of hostility from a less than receptive world. But then in the, the verses we just heard today, Jesus concludes by blessing all those who, unlike the hostile crowd, will welcome, provide hospitality to these bearers of the word. And he concludes this lovely passage by blessing all of the gracious hosts and hostesses who might someday, someday entertain his angels. Three passages about hospitality. And it seems to me there are basically two ways to understand these ancient hospitality stories, three ways to make them relevant to our lives today. The first and the more obvious way says that we should simply treat people graciously because you never know exactly whom you may have on your hands. Might be just another run-of-the-mill mortal slob, but life is full of surprises. It could turn out to be somebody important, important by divine reckoning. It might be a person with some important message for you. The word angel, by the way, simply means messenger. It might be a prophet or, in Jesus' word, a righteous man. Or it might be an angel of some species. So, this first logic says, best to play it safe. Hedge your bets Treat everybody really nice just in case. There's, of course, a self-serving edge to this. Graciousness and hospitality are recommended uh, because they're going to keep you out of trouble and they might further your career, either your mortal career here on earth or your, your eternal heavenly career. Now, if you hear these stories this way, they become cautionary tales. Cover your bases with good behavior or else. You might not know until it's too late exactly whom you are being hospitable or inhospitable towards. Now, this is not altogether bad advice. But the gospel of Jesus Christ runs deeper. I encountered uh, a version uh, what I'm going to identify is the second and more mysterious way to apply these hospitality passages in a story that I heard some years ago. I'm going to tell you this rather long story this morning. Uh, it's haunting, at least it has haunted me. It is frankly inconclusive in some ways, but many of you know that I relish in inconclusive stories. But it sheds fresh light, bright fresh light, on all of these biblical passages, and let me tell you, the Bible is full of them. All of these passages about being hospitable. Now, 
As I recall it, the story is set somewhere in the Middle East in a monastery. And the monastery in this story has dwindled down to just a handful of monks. It's an old, tired place. Time, the relentless labor, uh, the sameness of the days, the sameness of the same old monks day after day, year after year, all of it has drained life out of this religious community. Now, the abbot, that's the head guy in the monastery, is the only one who really notices this gradual incremental erosion. He laments it, but frankly, he is just plain old tired as well. He's worn out by the routine and the responsibility. Somehow, he sighs to himself, God does just not seem to be among us anymore. God seems to have moved God's self to the other end of the universe, and God has left us to go through the motions, empty religious motions, day after day. Now, this abbot is the one member of the monastery who leaves with any regularity. He goes to town to do errands. And as the story goes, one day in town, he strikes up an acquaintance with the rabbi of the local synagogue. They are drawn together, quite frankly, by their mutual exhaustion. The spirit has gone out of the life of the rabbi and his congregation as well. And these two friends spent hours together lamenting what used to be two old guys talking about the good old days. And together they decry the general decline of interest in spiritual matters. It's endemic to the day. This new generation just doesn't have what ours did. Now, one day, according to the story, the rabbi, or excuse me, the abbot is headed into town. And he meets his friend, the rabbi, coming the other direction in what is the closest approximation to running that this old guy could ever manage. And the rabbi is extraordinarily animated, animated in a way that the abbot has never seen before. I mean, he's flailing his arms. He motions to his friend that he has actually lost his voice. He can't say a word. The abbot settles him down. And the two of them sit down together under a tree. And after a few moments, the rabbi is able to compose himself enough to tell his friend, the abbot, that he has had a dream. And this dream is more vivid than anything he has ever dreamt in his life. The dream was incontrovertibly convincing, he says. It is a word from on high, and it has to do with your monastery. Again, his voice leaves him. But his passion to tell the story right now to his friend the abbot will not be deterred. So with a trembling hand, he grabs a sharp stone and he scratches a few Hebrew words in the dry dirt in front of the two of them. The abbot, a scholar of course, reads the words in the dirt and he trembles trembles with a mixture of incredulity and horror and wonder. The words written in the dirt simply say, the Messiah in your monastery. The abbot shakes his head and laughs out loud, just like Sarah, laughs out loud, a laugh with an edge of bitterness. The Messiah, he says, one of my pitiable little crew of monks, not very likely. But the rabbi is convinced of his dream. 
he insists to his friend that what he has dreamt has to be some sort of a divine message. After bringing his friend the rabbi home to a very worried family, the abbot returns to his monastery. He's haunted by this bizarre, bizarre episode, this unyielding conviction of a man, a fine man, a rabbi whom he knows to be the sanest of the sane. He can't get the story out of his head, even though he doesn't believe it. By the time he arrives back at the monastery, there's part of the abbot that has been captured by the old man's vision. He neither believes it nor disbelieves it, but he tells the story to the other monks, tells it a bit incredulously, just relating the day's bizarre events. But as he relates it to them, he can't help but look into each of their eyes as he has a thousand times before and ask himself, what if, what if? As the days pass, all of the monks find that the rabbi's dream haunts them as well. And quietly, almost imperceptibly, these monks begin to treat each other just a little bit differently. At first, they only catch each other's eye more often. They hold each other's gaze a little longer. They exchange an occasional smile for no good reason. After a few weeks, the sharp edge of their daily conversation begins to soften by something in closing, in approaching politeness. And as the months pass by, they find themselves ready to serve and defer to one another. They look out for each other's needs, little daily joys, a favorite dish cooked well, fresh flowers set on the table, a younger hand that reaches down to help an old man rise. And all this while, they neither believe nor disbelieve the rabbi's dream. But not one of them is able to altogether shake themselves away from the terrifying and wonderful possibility that somehow the presence of God may be in their midst. Now, as the months wear into years, according to this story, two strange things happen. First, the rabbi's dream is forgotten. There is no longer any talk about the possibility of the Messiah actually being among them. But the second thing that happens is this. The place is dramatically altered. The monastery, its daily routine and its worship come to be lit with mercy and kindness, invaded by an abiding sense that God really is somehow in the very midst of them. The place is transformed from a tired old museum of ritual into a living, breathing family of grace. And pretty soon pilgrims from the outside are attracted by the spirit that emanates from this place. The old monastery finds itself touching the lives of a spiritually thirsty world. Now, that's my story. Earlier I said to you, that I think there are two ways to hear these hospitality stories from the Bible. The first way, the more obvious way, would have you conclude that we just might as well treat each other graciously on the off chance that God might be present to us in another human being you never know. But the second way of looking at it is much deeper, and it's much more subtle. It goes like this. If we approach other people as if God were in them, 
If we approach the stranger as if God were in the stranger, if we love the friend, if we serve the family member as if God were present in them, we just may come in time to see that God is, in fact, present in them. See, the strange truth is this. We are angels to each other. I mean messengers, that's all the word means. It simply means messengers of the divine. So first, treat each other like angels, because you never know. But the deeper and more enigmatic truth is this. If we dare to trust that somehow God is in the midst of our lives, and if we treat other people, as if they were angels, we may actually become angels to each other. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.